Chapter Fifteen of the Riddle Ring by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fifteen. Will you stand in with us? So they went back into Sir Francis Rose's study, and they settled down to talk about work. Leave speculation and go to business were the words of Rose when they got up to quit the dining room. But the business seemed to Jim Conrad to be speculation of the most daring kind. Rose expounded his plans in his sweet, thrilling, musical voice, and Conrad could not conceal from himself that it carried a witchery along with it. Jim could not help thinking that if the owner of such a voice cared to fascinate women, there were but few women whom he might not fascinate. Nor could he keep down a sudden, strange, unmeaning wish that no woman he cared for, or might ever care for, should come within the spell of that voice. But the plans, the business? Well, it was very much as Mr. Whaley had described it, only that his was the merest sketch, and Sir Francis Rose filled in all the details and gave the thing life. The plan was a plan of discovery, a roving commission all over the world to find new fields and works for the capitalist. Sir Francis, in his enterprise, went in for anything. He recognized that the civilized nations had wakened up again to all the old enthusiasm for exploring and adventure. The passion for new fields of enterprise and of gain had sprung up in the hearts of people who heretofore had felt no touch of such a fever. It had always burned more or less steadily, more or less fitfully, in the hearts of Englishmen and of Dutchmen, but now there was France, there was Italy, there was Germany, there were the United States, although, of course, the United States thus far had in general found ample scope and room in their own vast and varied domains. But the capitalist of the United States was quite willing to venture beyond his own borders when there was any chance of a way to make money. In old days, when a discoverer found out a new promise of wealth in some far-off region, he annexed it for his king, or he sold it to his king. Now the plan, as Sir Francis Rose pointed out in eloquent and glowing words, was to sell the discovery to a capitalist, or to a syndicate of capitalists, and let the capitalists annex it or exhaust it for themselves. Sir Francis did not himself take much interest in the forming of companies. He preferred to allow other men to form the companies and take the responsibilities. He stipulated, of course, for a certain proportion of shares to begin with, and at the first profitable moment he sold the shares, got the money, and was free of the company's responsibilities. He became almost rapturous as he described the triumph of finding some new source of wealth for others, and of making some wealth out of it himself. Sir Francis dwelt especially on the safety of the enterprises. Jim felt a little puzzled. It seemed to him that the safety of the enterprise was not exactly the one element of the situation which, according to his judgment, would be most likely to captivate Sir Francis. He even went so far as to hint something of this. For me, Sir Francis said sweetly, 
no i must confess that for myself the dash of risk is pleasant in most cases who would care for the hunting field if there were really no danger there but i should be very sorry to draw any of my friends into dangerous situations my friends may not care for new sensations quite as much as i do tell me sir francis jim said two things will tell you anything my dear conrad first why did you think of asking me to take part in any of your enterprises and next what do you want me to do i have the greatest pleasure in answering both your questions why did i ask you to join me in some of my enterprises really and truly because waley put the idea into my head but what did waley know about me waley took a liking to you instinctively i think perhaps as you are both like myself men from the north country he told me you were just the man he wanted clever bold energetic a north country man and a man in trouble of some sort who would be glad to get into a new field of life do you know that waley is my brains carrier i did not know i should never have guessed it yes but he is rose declared earnestly i only amuse myself and kill time and all that but waley is in deep earnest about everything waley has all the gift of the divining rod i verily believe that if there were some new metal or some new diamond or some new force in industrial science to be found in crim tartary or the untrodden regions of central australia waley would have a vision in the night which would guide him to the very source of the discovery don't you make any mistake about it my dear conrad waley is the inspiration of all this work which i have taken up and i am at best the ornamental expounder he does not seem to be very rich mr waley no and sir francis looked a little dashed no i admit that we have not had quite time yet to amass a really considerable fortune but that i can tell you is no fault of waley's it is rather a fault of mine and of fate he would stick to a thing until it was fairly exhausted i can't that is not my way i want something new the moment we are well on with one thing i am inclined to say now then next that i suppose is not exactly the way of permanent success no it certainly does not seem like it to the unpractised mind but that is not waley's fault his one great fault is that he is too much devoted to me i feel it often i have told him so often the worst of it is the more frankly i tell him of it the more and more he becomes devoted to me yes jim thought he could understand the more the chief preached against too much devotion the more the devotion became too much jim had for some time been forming a high opinion of the gallant soul of mr waley then the second question conrad reminded rose what do you want me to do oh to be sure yes i was forgetting well we want you to go out prospecting somewhere 
anywhere but to some new place. Whaley will find out the place and start you on your mission. Of course, it is not to be a mission in our name. It is all your own chance or your own adventure, you see. But you will stand in with us. It must be some new place, not South Africa and not the familiar parts of South America. All these are rather played out, we think. And not diamonds and certainly not rubies. We want to hit on something quite new. But how on earth am I to find something quite new in some spot of the world quite new to me? Leave all that to Whaley. He will put you up to everything. He will look after your outfit and all that. He will give you inspiration. If you can get into a row with the natives of whatever the place is, all the better. The papers will then take the business up and boom it. But suppose I were to get killed, Jim asked with a smile. Sir Francis Rose looked up at him with quick and earnest eyes. My dear Conrad, he said emphatically, and his voice thrilled musically into Conrad's ear. I hope Whaley has not for once made a mistake. He told me he was convinced from what he had observed, and he is a very keen observer, that you were a young man who did not care three straws about life, I mean for the mere sake of living. Was there ever a young man who would not be touched and roused by such a way of putting the matter? Jim Conrad, a sensible fellow enough in ordinary affairs, saw himself at once as the hero of some ruined romance, as a man who cared nothing for life and only courted the uttermost danger that might come in his path. His late disappointment in love, his great disappointment, blended naturally in with that thought, and he became in the moment the man to lead a forlorn hope, any forlorn hope. In youth no quality seems so fascinating, so honourable, so romantic, so heroic, as a readiness to throw one's own life away. "'Yes, I care little for life,' Jim said. "'If I can't have, or as I can't have, the things I set my heart on. Whaley was right enough there.' "'I was sure Whaley would be right. "'And I am quite in sympathy with you, my dear Conrad. "'Life is a poor thing enough, even at the best, "'and at anything short of the best it is not worth having at all. I have always acted on that principle, and I find it saves one a vast amount of anxiety and of trouble and of terror. Well, then, we'll talk to Whaley more definitely about all this, and hear what new ideas he has to give. You are with us, I take it? Well, Jim answered good-humouredly, the basis of negotiations is found, as the diplomatists say. Yes, yes, I quite understand. I was a diplomatist myself for a short time. Did you know? Yes, I had heard. Of course you have heard. I was turned out of the service. At least I was requested to find some other field for my talents. I couldn't help taking part in a revolution in Mexico. 
I thought the chance of a new sensation was far too good to be lost, and they didn't like my conduct at the Foreign Office. The men of routine and red tape could not stand it, and there was nothing for it. I had to go. I am very glad now that I had to go. Diplomacy is the most stupid work, unless when occasionally tempered by revolution. Well, well, excuse me for bringing in all this talk about myself. We shall see Whaley tomorrow, and he will tell us exactly what he wants to have done, and where and how it is to be done. One question here, Sir Francis, before I go. As many questions as you like, my dear Conrad. Only one. What part does our silent friend Marmaduke Coffin play in all this business? Sir Francis smiled. A very useful but a very humble part. Coffin is our general finder-out, not chucker-out. Don't confound two quite different functions. Our general finder-out. I'm afraid I don't quite understand. Why, don't you see? If you want anything found out, Coffin is the man to find it out for you. He has the instinct of a sleuth-hound himself for running in the trail of a scent. Nobody knows or cares about him, and he tries to know all about everybody. I don't believe there is anything he couldn't find out if only you gave him a little time. He is to be trusted absolutely. I think he is bound to me partly, as Whaley is, because we are all North Country men. He doesn't seem to make much money out of the business, Jim could not help remarking. No, he has not made much money yet, but he is in hopes of getting something out of the business sometime. He has an ambition in life. Yes, and that is? Don't know, I'm sure. Perhaps to settle some son or daughter in life. He has a son or a daughter. My dear fellow, I don't know, never asked. We don't ask questions of each other. Has he a wife? In a manner, yes, that I do know, he told me. She lives here in London. She was a bad lot, I believe, and led him a devil of a life, and he went away and settled in Paris. I hope to do something for him some day. In the meantime, I could trust him with my life, and, do you know, Conrad, I am quite sure he would kill a man without asking a question, if I wanted a man killed and were to tell him to do it. He seemed to me a man of extraordinary self-control and determination, Conrad said. But I hope his energy will never be taxed in that particular sort of way. Oh, no, no, what nonsense, what nonsense, Sir Francis said with a musical laugh. We have nothing to do with killing. It is not in our line one little bit. Mine was only a hasty illustration. We are for making and not marring. We want to make our own fortunes, and are not unwilling to that end to help other people to make their fortunes too. I think we make a capital triumvirate, Whaley, Coffin, and I. Whaley is the inspiration— I am the working manager. 
Coffin presides over the intelligence department. How did you all come together? Well, you see, to begin with, we were all young together on my good old grandfather's estate. And then there is something which draws men together, however different they may be in fortune and position and inclination and all the rest of it, and makes them comrades whether they will or no. Don't you think there is something in that? Yes, indeed, I am sure there is. A great deal in that more than we can yet understand. I am sure of it, Sir Francis Rose said, with an air of composed conviction. I dare say science will tell us something some day, when science condescends to concern herself a little more with human beings and a little less with dogma, about that curious, unexplained, but very certain attraction of some men towards some other men. Perhaps in his secret mind Conrad was just then inclined rather to study the curious, unexplained, but perfectly certain attraction of some particular man to some particular woman, and some particular woman to some particular man. But he accepted in good faith the theory of Sir Francis Rose, and was willing to wait until science should work it all out and make its springs quite clear. "'Well, that is how we have drifted together, we three, Sir Francis said, as if the whole thing was thereby quite settled and done with. "'Of course there are many more hands to the work, but we three hold the strings of the management in our grip. "'I suppose the same law of attraction led Waley to you, and me to you through Waley. "'Anyhow, I feel as if I had known you all my life.' and I should, without a moment's hesitation, trust my life to you. Jim was touched. You might. It would be safe, he said quietly. Of course, I know it. By the way, talking of secrets, I should say that Whaley and Coffin and myself are bound together by a common misfortune, from which you as yet are wholly exempt and will be, I trust, for all your life, although I only piously trust it. Yes? What is that? Do please give me warning in time. Not the least use, my dear Conrad, in giving you or any other man a warning as to that particular rock ahead. If he is going to run upon it, he will run upon it, cry out who may. But what is it? Can't you guess? Ah, well, you are very young. We all made a sad mistake. We each married the wrong woman. Conrad could hardly help laughing at this blunt declaration, given out as it was in a tone of absolute resignation. He tried to be very grave as he said, I am sorry to hear that. Yes, I knew you would be. It fell out in different ways. I married a woman who was much too good for me, and she bored me to death, and I couldn't stand her. Whaley married a woman who was not half good enough for him, and she bored him, and she could not stand him. Coffin married a woman who was not good enough for anyone, and he began to make up his mind that if he were to stay too long with her, he would certainly lose his head some day and kill her. 
and so, as I told you, he took his flight, and he settled in Paris. But he would come over here if ever we wanted him, at any risk, even at the risk of meeting his wife. And having to kill her? Conrad asked. Oh, no, not the slightest necessity for that now. He does not live with her any more, and he has his life all to himself. It seems a sad story, Jim said. Coffins. Yes, oh, yes. But don't you think they are all sad stories? I suppose so, Jim said doubtfully, thinking to himself a wife too good for a man was a burden that any man might be willing to endure. Well, anyhow, that is not to our present purpose, and I don't quite know why I gave you all these private histories. I suppose because of that mysterious law of attraction about which we have just been talking. So be it. The immediate question is, are you inclined to stand in with us? I am inclined, yes. But before giving a definite answer, I should first like to have a talk with Whaley and find out exactly what he wants me to do. Until I know that, I could hardly give you an answer, Sir Francis. I know my own capacity pretty well, and Whaley does not. I know what I should be able to do. If he wanted a hair of the Soldan's beard or a blast of Oberon's horn, I am sure I could not get either for him. No, and I am afraid Whaley would not care much about them even if you did. Very well, you shall see Whaley tomorrow. I shall wire to him to call on you. And will you see me the day after, here? Yes, certainly. At what hour? Oh, let me see. Come to luncheon, if you don't mind. We both must have luncheon somewhere, and it saves time to have it together and talk over matters of business. So it does. I shall come. Have you business offices in the city? My dear Conrad, Sir Francis exclaimed in a tone of some astonishment, nothing of the kind. We are not a limited company, or a company of any kind. We are a comradeship of enterprising gentlemen, who desire to develop wherever they can the world's resources, of any kind and in every direction, and to make money for ourselves out of the fruits of our genius, shall I call it, and our energy. That's quite a different sort of thing, can't you see, Conrad? from a company with a board of directors and preference shares and meetings of shareholders and hostile resolutions and all that inconvenient bother. Yes, I see that it is different, and I suppose I shall come to understand not only the difference, but the reasons for the difference in good time. Of course you shall. You shall understand all about it. Well, meantime, I think we quite understand each other, Sir Francis, Jim said warmly, for he was a little touched at the outspoken candour which had taken him so far into an unsought confidence. I'll talk over matters with Whaley tomorrow, and I shall be with you here the day after. Thanks, ever so much. That is all that I could possibly expect. Goodbye, my dear fellow. Goodbye. So they shook hands and parted. Jim Conrad went down the staircase, 
he did not trouble about the lift, with a mind which wonder and puzzlement had filled. What did Sir Francis Rose and Whaley want of him in this curious companionship? What was the companionship? Was it a reality at all? Had it any form and purpose and system? It was clear that he had not to do with three maniacs. Rose seemed alive with cleverness and vivacity and shrewdness, and, besides, Rose was now a man of fortune, and was under no necessity for mixing himself up in wild speculations. Mr. Whaley seemed the very embodiment of health and manly strength and watertight sanity. The soundness or the madness of Marmaduke Coffin would not have been of much account in any case. Rose had clearly defined Coffin's business in the comradeship as that of the finder-out, and a man with only half his senses about him might be a perfect genius at the work of finding out. The whole thing seemed to Jim attractive, romantic, highly fascinating. It flattered his youthful self-esteem to have been taken into such full confidence, and to have been treated as a young man who was not afraid to go into danger, and might be trusted to make his way out of it. Undoubtedly there was an indescribable attraction for him in the voice and the manners, and the winning confidential ways of Sir Francis Rose, and yet there seemed something subtle and dangerous in them too. He put all further thought away, and determined to wait for a decision until he should have talked with Whaley. End of chapter 15